You're listening to the Work Cultured Podcast, where good companies keep good company. All right. Hey, welcome back to the Work Culture Podcast. We have a guest today uh, with the same name as Daniel, oh, same last name as Daniel. This is Tim Hamilton. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, guys. I'm happy to be with you. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on. Yeah. yeah and now I, I pasted a whole bio, but we're not going to read that. But we can't put it on, on our media page. But you started a company. This is the highlight to me. You started a company when you were 16 years old. And now you're 22 years in. I mean, you're not 22 years old. Your company is 22 years old. Is that, is that right? That's, Am I that's right. I was 16 when I got started. Um, and yeah, it's been 22 years. It's hard to believe. It's been a fun journey for sure. 100 employees. That's like, right. We just uh, just crossed 100 employees last month. Um, it uh, it has it has been the work of a lifetime in many ways, and I couldn't have done it without my business partner and the leadership team that we've assembled. Um, but it, it's definitely been a journey for sure. Yeah. We don't usually talk about what companies do because it's interesting how irrelevant that is to building culture. But like if you could give us like the real quick high level, just so we know what Praxent is, which I need to make sure we say the name of your company. Uh, give us the quick and dirty. I'm happy to. Praxent is a fintech software design and engineering firm. Uh, we help fintechs, financial institutions, registered investment advisors, etc., to build the next generation of financial technology that they want to bring to market. Uh, we're a services team. We don't sell a product. And so in many cases, that's assembling a software engineering or software design team to get a job done. Wow. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and Praxent has um, just a slew of awards. Uh, you know, just some of the ones that I pasted here, Clutch Top Software Development Company, multiple years, Inc. 5000, Honorary, multiple years, EO Austin Opportunity of the Year, 2016. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Um, and one of the things I noticed is on Glassdoor, you guys have a 4.9 rating, which in and of itself is unheard of. And then you yourself have a CEO approval rating of 99%. I've never, literally never seen it. That is, that's very kind of you. It, um, I really, I have to give credit seriously to the leadership team that we've assembled and the extraordinary team of individuals that we put together. Um, I read a, I read a profound book on leadership by retired Naval Captain uh, David Marquet in 2014, and he had this really unique concept of um, leadership at every single level, not yeah. top-down leadership, not even a concept of uh, organizational empowerment, but leadership at every single level. And that book really um, broke open my brain and kind of <laughs> inspired me to, to experiment with my business as if it were a, a Petri dish, um, to apply those concepts. And so um, uh, we've really been very successful, like pulling in his concepts and the other, other, other concepts from other great thinkers to build an organization that we are genuinely proud of, um, that uh, we all really thoroughly enjoy. And, and I, I, I'm very proud to see that reflected on Glassdoor and in, yeah. in some of the other rewards that you mentioned. Thank you so much. That, it's yeah, it's really neat. incredible. Uh, but I mean, it is, you're not perfect. Right? There is that 1%. <laughs> <laughs> Far from perfect. Well, oh my gosh. Or, or actually, it literally could just be that Glassdoor doesn't allow a 100. <laughs> exactly. Because, so, I mean, in sales, right? I mean, I've been in sales for 22 years, and it's a pretty normal thing, especially in the last several years. If I'm researching a company before I call someone, right, I'm looking at, at Glassdoor. Before I go to dinner, I'm looking at Yelp. And as I looked at Glassdoor, I could not, I, I found some four star reviews. 
found a couple of three star. I could not find like a negative review. And if it's okay, I literally wrote down a couple that were just some, some little notes. Um, and this one was good because your website talks about intentionality with everything, but this person, that's what they said that, that the people at this company are intentional about everything they do. Another person said, this is a lifelong dream come true. And he said the, the company core values are lived out every day by the team. And the CEO is a person on principle that reinforces those core values. And someone else said, this was the best decision I've ever made in my life. And so, yeah, that speaks to, and I love even hearing your response of, of nope, it's, it's all about the team around us. And, and what a, like a beautiful sentiment to, to not only have these glowing reviews, uh, what also seems to be a pretty long tenure um, at the company. I saw y'all recently celebrated um, your first uh, like developer that's been there 15 years. I mean, for a 22-year-old company celebrating 15-year employees, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I know you, you, you probably get asked this in a variety of different ways, but um, I mean, if you, if you boil it down to, to one, two, three of your top, cause I know y'all have those, those six core values, but like what, what's, what's the secret? I mean, what's the, what's the, the one or two things that you go, this is what it's all about. This is our, our, our secret sauce to culture. Well, gosh, you guys, thank you so much for those kind words. I, I, um, I'll just say that our, our core values were designed extremely intentionally, if I can use those words. Uh, we, we, we designed them after a lot of, um, well, our failures and adversity, the challenges that we were experiencing throughout several chapters of the company caused us to sort of look inward and reflect. And one of the things that I took away from that experience is that I've gotten razor clear, super, super clear on my negotiables and non-negotiables through mm-hmm. adversity. And so when we lost revenue or when we had a you know, bad partnership or when things didn't go as planned, um, I was able to kind of zoom out, get away from the day-to-day and reflect on what can I take away from this experience. And through that process, it was the whittling down and clarification of these six ideas. We call them the can-do um, spirit. Uh, each of those letters, C-A-N-D-O, is, uh, is a, a, a tool to help us to remember those six core values. They're, oh, wow can do, um, care deeply, always deliver, never settle, do it together, own the outcome. So can do is the first one. And that's one of the most important ones. Own the outcome is the other one. So I'm going to start with own the outcome first. That's what I like to call the Stephen Covey core value. If you guys have ever read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the one chapter one, habit one that really stood out to me was be proactive. Um, And be proactive is all about... um, you know, it, no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens to us, we are 50% responsible for our next. We're, we're, we're empowered. We're in a position of power over our response to that. There is stimulus, which we may or may not have control over, but then there's response. And so in that circumstance, I always say I'm at least 50% responsible for, you know, how I got here. And I'm, I'm therefore in a position of power to, to, to make the next move. Only the outcome is fully taking responsibility for, for your failure, even if you're 51% responsible by taking 100% responsibility of that then all of a sudden you now have agency to figure out what's next you also de-escalate the hurt and the misunderstanding and the confusion in the other party um I, I'd say the majority of a conflict is is centered around you know not taking responsibility and not being accountable for for your part in it 
And um, that conflict can fester and it can be dysfunctional if, if that moment of accountability and ownership does not occur. And so own the outcome is, oh my gosh, that's step number one. We can't move past this, whether we've let a client down or we, we haven't you know, made a good hire or whatever has gone wrong. We can't get past it unless there's a moment of accountability. And so we're going to be the company that starts first by taking accountability. And I'd say that is a universal core value that every single one at Praxent, every one of us, like we come back to that, we, 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 we do business with it, we wrestle with it. And that, that has resulted in a team that is extraordinarily accountable, extraordinarily responsible. Um, makes sense? Yeah. It and absolutely I, does. If it's okay to put you on the spot, and I don't, you know, you're welcome to, to think about this for a moment. But as you talked about that, I was thinking like, like practically, what does that look like? Can you think of maybe a, a time recently where someone had to be accountable for, for something and then how were y'all able to, to write the, the ship? Well, I, I want to I riff on that and actually pivot your question because there is a question that we ask every single guest. And so this is a great segue. Uh, the question is, what is a mistake you've made in leadership that you'll never forget? And now I know it's hard to narrow down to one. We've, we've all made a lot. <laughs> but... It, now, in the vein of own the outcome, I'm curious if you can not just like say, here's here's this the thing that came to my mind, but also here's how I own the outcome. Yeah. Um, you know, what I've learned is uh, there is a real temptation for us to become enamored by a, a professional, a veteran who we want to hire, like a, an incredible person who's got this beautiful resume, who's done all these things and uh, go out and you know, bring them into the company with this idea that they're somehow going to they're, they're gonna be a force multiplier in the company. Yeah. And gosh, you guys, I have, um, I have experimented with that so many times to go out there and make a big hire. And I've put my team and my company through a lot of, a lot of pain and uh, wow. struggles going, to do, going through that process because ultimately it's extremely difficult, even through a seven-step interview process, and the gauntlet, e huh? Even the gauntlet, that's mm -hmm. what it's called, yeah. right? And even, even spending, in one case, over 40 hours interviewing a candidate, you know, making a bet like that, um, it's just a fraught process. And um, that's, that's the one that's at the top of my list is, you know, like I, I have been, in many cases, the one that is like pushing our leadership team to make that next big bet. And, um, yeah, that... that uh, it's not just a, a single failure. It's been a it's been a pattern of challenges and like one one that I've I've had to wrangle with quite a lot. And that that would be the one that I would go to the team with right now and say, gosh, you know, I, I put the whole company through a lot of stress and strife and angst in 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 those big hires. Um, what I've realized in the process is that um, hiring um, or betting on the team that you already have and bringing in people at the beginning of their of their of their professional development actually has a, a lot higher chance of success. It takes longer. Um, you, sure. you don't move quite as quickly. Um, and you, you also don't have as much con sort of quote unquote control. And so it doesn't feel safe. You, you can't like get your emotional needs met quote unquote as a leader. And so that's yeah. another thing that I take responsibility for is like, gosh, there were, had, there have been chapters with my business where I have um, not been going uh, to work with the greatest, you know, the, the, the greater good of the company and my team as my priority. I've been like unconsciously or maybe some co sometimes consciously going to get my whatever it is, my 
my sense of achievement met or my desire for progress met. And I've been prioritizing that over perhaps the potential in some cases. And so th those are some of the themes that come to mind for me. There's an amazing book by Liz Weissman called Rookie Smarts, and she talks about and has done an exhaustive study over in knowledge work industries specifically, does it make sense to hire a rookie or a veteran? Mm -hmm. And how do you think about that? And in her research, she shows that, um, I've forgotten the statistics, but in, in almost all cases, it makes sense to hire a rookie. They come in with what uh, is a very, very hard-to-find quality, an attribute that all of us lose as we age or get, quote-unquote, uh, we, we accumulate veteran smarts. And that capability, that competency, is beginner, a beginner's mind. Yeah. A rookie comes in with a beginner's mind, and I think I have underestimated the value and importance of having a beginner's mind. So many times. It's been a lesson that's taken me way too long to learn. Um, and it's not something we can ever get back, right? Like, you can't re-enter beginner mindset. 100%. So if you can bring those people in who have it, Keep you get to leverage you. what they have. Like, they literally have something that you have lost. 100%. Yeah, <laughs> what what I have accumulated or what veterans have accumulated according to, to her book, it's this amazing metaphor she uses. She calls it professional scar tissue. <laughs> and, you know, professional scar tissue is when you've done a thing or, or, or learned a hard lesson or whatever, we start to play smaller. We start to play either with anxiety if we're fearful about the future or depression if we're concerned about the past. Um, and that impacts our performance. It, you know, it changes our interactions. It changes everything. So, that's the one thing that really, really comes to mind for me. Um, uh, you know, it's a hard question that you guys ask, but that's uh, that's been a hard one lesson, or yeah, hard one lesson to learn. Wow. Well, thanks for th sharing that. That's yeah, that's a that's a new one. That's good though. Yeah. Pleasure. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, there, there's another core value that comes to mind that I want to highlight with you guys. Uh, you talked about Nick earlier. He was, you know, one of my very first employees. Has been with me for 15 years. We celebrated his 15 year anniversary recently. Um, he taught me this core value. He brought this core value into the company. When he taught us, he went off and, and uh, took an improv class. He was, he was nervous to presenting and talking with clients, and we're a client services company, and so there's a lot of high-stakes presentations you've got to do. And so, so to conquer that fear, he went off and took an improv class. <laughs> and he came back That's and he shared, he shared a lesson with me. It's the yes and rule in improv, where if you're up on a stage with your co-performer and you're like, hey, Jason, let's go to the park... The rule is you'd never say no to that idea. Right. You'd build on the idea with a yes and. That sounds mm -hmm. great, Tim. Let's do it. Let's stop and get ice cream on the way. And he brought that in and, and, and taught me that that really needed to be a core part of our language, a core part of our mindset. Our clients are coming, into, coming to us with ideas, and many of those ideas aren't really the end-all, be-all idea. Um, they might be on the right track, and they're always well-intentioned, but they might be off. Our job, if we say no but, all of a sudden we're in a fight with them. Yeah. And... And what we've done is we've prioritized being right over being in relationship. Yes, and flips that. We're going to prioritize being in relationship always over being right. And, and we're going to you know, say yes, and to that idea. And then say, would it be okay if we explore that? While we're exploring that, let's also look at these other ones. Anyway, that's all the background. The way we articulate that is can do. And that became the acrostic that ties all the core values together. Um, I love that. Wow. Now, I mean, are, are there still instances where you say yes and, and you go down that road, and then you still don't necessarily maybe implement an idea that has to change or eventually does have to be scrapped? That's almost always, that's always okay. almost how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, 
you know, yes and doesn't necessarily mean we're just going to blindly follow the wrong path, but it does yeah. mean we're going to stick together. There's an African proverb that is really influenced, and it's reflected in our core, core value called Do It Together. The African proverb is to go fast, go alone. To go far, go together. And um, our objective in a, as a services firm is to go far, not necessarily go fast. And um, I bet that's hard for you. More on that later. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So can do. I love where it came from. Um, the improv. That this is what a great story. Thank you. Now we chatted before we ever kind of got together and sat here on uh, on this couch and chair about uh, an idea of culture, and and I would love you for you to restate what you've already said to me, uh, and, and let's dive into that and and give us a chance to kind of ask you some more questions on it. Yeah, I've been reading this amazing world historian and philosopher called Noah Yuval Harari. I read his book, Sapiens. And Can you say that slower? Yeah, <laughs> Noah Yuval Harari. Uh, okay. and, and the first book he wrote is called Sapiens. It's all about our species and the history of our species on the, on the planet Earth. And, um, and, he, and he's a very rare thinker. He, he's both extremely funny and accessible, but he also thinks at an altitude that is extremely illuminating. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in, that, in that book, he makes this very compelling argument about what sets us apart. How, how are human beings different than other animals uh, and, and species on the face of the earth? And he comes down to you know, looking at, is it our intelligence? And he, he makes a compelling argument that no, it's not the intelligence. It's not our ability to make better tools. It ultimately comes down to our ability to mobilize in groups of over a billion people. If you think about the globally interconnected economy of now over seven, seven and a half, eight billion people around the world. Yeah. Um, primates cap out at 150. They can organize activities and work as a 150 per a unit team. That's called Dunbar's number. Um, but that's as high as Mother Nature can go. They can't, like Mother, no species can, can coordinate and orchestrate things uh, over that number of, of uh, individuals in a, in a group or tribe or a school or whatever you call it. Humans have broken that threshold, uh, as I said, by working now in, by a large margin. <laughs> And he says it's because of our ability to motivate and persuade and bend our behavior to ideas. Um, and, and he talks about this is what ideology is. This is what, this is what dogma is. This is what fiction is. This is what memes or memetics are. Um, our ability to be motivated by and transcend the individual because of an idea. And you see this in... Yeah whether it's politics or, you know, whether it's socialism or fascism, democracy, or whether it's, you know, um, Christianity or Judaism, these are all ideas that pull us from an individual mindset to a community mindset and you know, put us in the service of others in many ways, the good ideologies do at least. I, I, re- I, mean, I love where this is probably heading because so far you haven't said anything that's innately good. Right, it, it it can also be really bad. This this mobilization, we've seen it a number of times. I mean, it, all you have to do is pay attention for like two seconds, and you see mobilization for really bad causes. Um, so that that trait that makes us distinctly human uh, is not innately good or bad, but it has the potential for both. But you're talking about it relating to culture, so. Keep keep us going down this path. <laughs> that is such an important point. You're exactly right. Nazism, for example, universally, you know, w- we would all agree that that's a that's a very bad ideology. That's a perfect example. <laughs> we hope we would all yeah. agree. Yeah, very bad. Would, yeah, right. So we all agree. <laughs> you um, 
you you can use it for good or bad, but um, the ingredients are the same. So what I've discovered, and really really feel strongly now, having read his brilliant work, the uh, Noah Yuval Harari's brilliant work, is that there are building blocks and ingredients to creating ideology. And um, we're in today talking about you know, using using this for good, right? So rituals, cadences, events and gatherings that happen on a regular, recurring basis that have an agenda. Um, that you come to and you can rely upon. Um, inside jokes, you know, yeah. that are born from shared experiences. Um, yeah. uh, physical uh, uh, tokens, like, like an award. We, we, uh, um, we have a badge program. I'm a Boy Scout, you know, grew up, grew up in Wait, Boy Scout. Wait, are you Scout, an Eagle Scout? Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, I got merit badges on my, on my way to Eagle and uh, always wanted to find a way to unlock merit badges at Praxent. And... We've finally done it, um, and uh, that's a beautiful way of giving a physical token that has meaning, unique meaning within within a group. Anyway, so these are all building blocks of culture and um, or ideology, whatever you want to call it. And I think um, you know whether it's Vern Harnish in the book Rockefeller Habits or um, uh, Gina Wickman in his book uh, EOS and Traction. Um, they're all talking about very similar things. It's it's basically assembling the building blocks of of culture and ritual or cadence or tokens or gestures. And so um, I want to tell you guys a little story to make this relatable. We were having, I've got a six and a seven-year-old, and a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. actually just heading into the pandemic, we were having a really hard time getting getting our kids, Graham and Haley, to brush their teeth at night. No parent, I'm sure, has ever experienced that. We're probably the Never. only ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's weird. Um, What's wrong with kids, you? My kids, they just love brushing their teeth. <laughs> that's right. So we went to, we, we had a we had a conversation, a school, a school uh, info session, I think, and the head of school um, said this incredible thing. He said, uh, as we were talking about the challenge with brushing the teeth, he said, complicate it. And uh, we said, say more. And he said, make it got complicated. Add more to it. And uh, he walked us through it. And so we went to the store. We went to Target that day. We, w- we got a little timer that you could flip over uh, up, and, up and down. We got a container. We wrote Graham's name on it, Haley's name on the other container. We got little, little cups for the, the toothbrushes. We got cups for the toothpaste. We got a little flossing thing going. We wrote a procedure. We complicated it. We added and embellished hmm. all um, and with, with, with a variety of different physical um, as well as sort of ritualistic things to, to make brushing teeth more interesting. When the kids got home from school that day, we took them upstairs and showed them like the new tooth- toothbrushing station, and they flipped out. They couldn't. They couldn't wait for the first time they're going to get to <laughs> that's that. so fun. And so um, that really stuck with me. This concept of complicated. There is something really motivating intrinsically about that as human beings. We want to have a complicated. Exp- I don't know. Shared experience that's got layers and uh, nuance, and and so. For 22 years, we've been uh, consciously or unconsciously applying that intuition to our own culture, complicating it with badges, complicating it with limited edition swag. So we just, for example, printed 20, a 20 set T-shirt um, collection, and there, there will never be more than 20 T-shirts in that particular collection. So if you get one of those, y- you can claim something rare within this ideology. Those are just different ways of complicating it. We shut the company down for four days every single year on two separate occasions, so two days each, for growth days. And we give everyone a budget, and we say, you can go and learn whatever you want to learn. 
self-organize and then bring back your learnings. And wow. that's become like a complication. People look forward to, it used yeah. to be called a hackathon. It's no longer in person, so it's growth days. But <laughs> those are those are just examples of how we've kind of just layered upon um, intuitively uh, and, and until recently, like the, the, the good mojo that we just observed naturally happening within the organization. Yeah. And let's, let's just do more of that. Wow. So there's a, a word I want to throw out there. Um, I, I got trained by Brene Brown a few years ago. She uses this word a lot. I'm also currently reading a book called The Culture Code, uh, and it's very acutely talking about this word, belonging. You're talking about the bad. You're talking about bringing people together. You're talking about complicating. You're talking about the sense of togetherness and the tribe and everything else. Uh, do you feel that that word is kind of pivotal to what you're talking about? God, so interesting to, to hear you use that word. In many in many ways, I kind of look back on my journey with Praxent as um, my desire to create a, com- a, a community where I felt like I belonged. Mm. I'm an immigrant from South Africa originally. It was very, very difficult for me to fit in. I had a, I mean, who didn't? But I mean, I had a really brutal, brutal experience in middle school, sixth and seventh and eighth grade. Ouch. Um, and I think coming out of middle school, kind of getting into high school, dreaming about what was next? I, I, in in some ways, not only was I fascinated by the work of of the company and the technology and the learning that went along with it, but I also wanted to create a place that, you know, really uh, delivered on that concept of belonging. It's interesting for you to highlight it here. Yeah, hundred percent that resonates with me. Awesome. Yeah, and so within Praxent, you know, you've you're about a hundred. You just celebrated your hundredth employee, right? And but it's over twenty years, so it's a nice steady growth. You didn't have this massive influx of people, at least it doesn't seem like it. Um, how, are there any like practices on the front side, bringing in a new employee, onboarding that you you customize for people, or that you know, helps them get that sense of belonging, or introduces them to? I, I threw out that word, not you. So, but like you know, it gets them into that fold in a really effective way. Yeah, there, and I, if I can. Add, I mean, I would even love to hear more about the gauntlet as well. Like, th- yeah. I mean, reading all about it's y'all's true, y'all's yeah. hiring process for sure. Oh, I'd love to. So, I want to answer those questions, but I first want to I want to correct uh, your assumption that it, it kind of happened in a smooth, gradual way over twenty years. It didn't. You had some um, big pops. It was only really over the past five years that we oh, wow. found our like found our groove and achieved this growth that we've really unlocked most recently and. And the reason I wanted to highlight that is um, because of this cliche that culture eats strategy for breakfast. As much as we're talking about culture here today, I, um, that is not consistent with my experience. Culture doesn't mm. eat strategy for breakfast. For me, the two shouldn't really be compared, one lesser, uh, one, one uh, greater. I think really they are two critical ingredients to what we're describing. Um, I can't remember who said it at Rackspace, Maybe Lanham Napier, but but the quote is, um, the most motivating thing is to be a valued member of a winning team. Valued member, winning team. Those are two essential ingredients. If we're on a losing team, it's very difficult to build a culture that propels itself, that that leads itself, that embellishes and enhances itself and lives by these uh, ideologies. It's not impossible. You can absolutely lead in that way. It just requires a lot of additional effort. If you're in a winning environment and the team is growing, um, there is this other condition that gets met, which is essential. Uh, This came from the book The Progress Principle, where these researchers got together and they figured out um, 
after doing a big, huge research study, what was the most important condition that an organization needs to meet for the workforce to feel engaged, happy, challenged, motivated? They were expecting in the study to find like 27 different things and that it would be a horrendously complicated confluence of things you had to get right. Um, they were very surprised after doing the factor analysis that one factor stood head and shoulders above all the others. And they called it the progress principle. One of the words, the sense that people have that things are going to get better in the future. Wow. I'm glad that you brought that up because that was one of the things I was reading just uh, in the last few hours was, yes, this this concept. So I'm excited to hear you go a little it, deeper on the progress. So, it's so important. And it's um, um, you can't you can't have the progress principle without a strategy that's working that that is you know got product market fit that's working in the economy that's growing that's got demand and customers and um you cannot that condition cannot exist and um while we talk we can talk a lot about um the tactics of of culture which are critically important and i have spent a lot of time studying like getting hiring right and doing good onboarding without the progress principle um really that stuff it, it really doesn't move the needle as much as um, I, in my experience, it doesn't move the needle all that much. Um, so we'll talk just a little bit more about the progress principle and what, what it took for us to kind of lock that in. Um, as an employee at a company, I want to know that if I apply my discretionary effort, go above and beyond, I'm going to be noticed and I'm going to be rewarded and that there's going to be, you know, right. some, some, something is going to happen. I'm going to advance and progress. And for years and years, employees asked us for a professional advancement framework. They wanted to know, how am I going to get promoted? How am I going to get raises? How is my situation going to progress? And I had, I had no answer um, for many years. It, really, it, was a, it was a really hard conversation for me to have because I didn't have great news for that person. I didn't really know how, how I was going to help them to progress because so much of it depended on the company's success. Yeah. Then we had this aha moment. Oh, my gosh. We have to provide a more compelling answer to that question. Um, we can't until the individual's advancement is interdependently linked with the company's success, because otherwise you end up promoting people to the point of the company bankruptcy. Um, so we need this interdependency between individual advancement and professional advancement and the company pie getting bigger. And that's when we started thinking about this from a company pie getting bit bigger standpoint. What are the conditions that have to exist for the pie to grow? And we, um, we decided, uh, figured out that, did kind of our own factor analysis. We, we came up with three major categories that had each th sort of three, three sub-conditions within them for a total of nine conditions. If these nine conditions are met at Praxent, the company pie will get bigger. Um, they have to do with um, the client's experience and um, our brand and the team member's experience. Those are the three big categories. And um, then we started think thinking to ourselves, okay, what, what are the individual things that people can do to, to drive those nine conditions? What, is I, what, what can I as an employee of the company do to contribute to the company's brand? Um, and once we got clear on that, we had an interdependent link between individual contribution and individual advancement and the company pie and the fina financial progress. And that was what helped us to unlock the progress principle. And then ultimately publish a career advancement framework, introduce badges that positive re positively reinforce this concept. Um, gosh, I'm going all over the place, but there was just another study that I wanted to share with you guys that was absolutely mind-blowing on this journey. It was discovered by Aubrey Daniels and his team in the book, um, Bringing Out the Best in People, where he discovered that positive reinforcement delivered at a high-frequency dose um, is the most important, is the most impactful management intervention that there is. Positive reinforcement 
at a high efficiency, high frequency dose. High frequency dose, okay. And the 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 uh, one of the most incredible stories he told was he looked at uh, air traffic controllers, arguably one of the most stressful jobs in the in the in the world, and he he found that. Um, it takes about five years to become a, an expert or veteran air traffic controller. In this experiment, he took complete newbies who were aspiring air traffic controllers, and he wanted to know with, with the optimal management intervention, um, positive reinforcement, how quickly can I get a complete newbie to perform at the same level as a veteran? And what he found was that um, nothing but positive reinforcement, no negative reinforcement. In a training f- uh, a simulator, he had a red light and a green light. The green light would go on if you make a good move. The red light would go off if you make a mistake. Shutting off the, the red light was, uh, was key. The other thing is that delivering positive reinforcement as often as every seven seconds was able to, he, doing that, he was able to get within a simulator somebody making the same decisions, performing at the veteran level within 400 hours of training. 400 hours, not 10,000. hour. Wow. Instead of five years. Yeah. 10,000 hours versus 400. That's which insane. Which is wow. unbelievable, yeah. right? And so um, I think as managers, one of the critical tactics we need to learn is that like doing the negative reinforcement, you know, the, the feedback sandwich, the constructive, like it's just a disaster. Yeah. The more we can um, notice people and call out their, their positive contributions and just praise them in a high frequency and authentic way for their for their genuine contributions, the more effective uh, we are as managers. In fact, if we don't do anything else, that's going to be that's going to be good. Yeah. And so we've incorporated that into the the professional advancement frame, framework, and the badges um, give us a way to give that that positive hit more frequently than we can, for example, a promotion or a raise. So anyway, that I just thought I'd share all that as background because it really wasn't until um, the past four or five years that we kind of started to get all this stuff working that we then started to experience the growth that um, you, you guys very generously highlighted in the beginning of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, all of this stuff combined, I, you know, one of the things we didn't mention at the introduction of everything is like all the awards that you've gotten for your best place to work in Austin, best small business, uh, top employer. I mean, I have, I'd have to scroll up on my computer, but it's, it's just a laundry list of award after award after award about places to work. Uh, and it, and I, I keep hearing from you this extreme intentionality, uh, something that I don't hear a whole lot. You know, we have ideas and, and uh, philosophies about culture, but you have intentional steps and, and just continue to have, uh, learn and learn and implement and implement. They're, they don't stay ideas. They're not pies in the sky. They are core values. They're processes. They are uh, implemented it sounds like from yourself all the way down uh, with, like I said, a lot of intentionality. Oh, thank you for saying that. Like, like I said, that Petri dish analogy really does fit, you know, I think for me and the leadership team, we just kind of treat the company as a way to experiment with the latest thinking in whether it's strategy or culture building and management. And, and it's, it's a, it's, the, it's a thrill to, to put this stuff into play and then see it blossom. So like this professional development, Page, am I understanding right that all of this is has been really like on paper in the last handful of years? Yeah. Wow. We've been working on it in earnest for more, for longer than that. But okay. in many many of those years, we we're hitting our head against the the brick wall. Um, it, it's really over only in the past four or five years that we've uh, we've nailed nailed down a lot of the stuff and gotten really uh, clear on it. I love it. And then I was really trying to you know, and Jason and I 
have known each other for a while, but we're also, you know, we're very different people and we prepare differently. And, and so it's fun when we prepare for a show and he's telling me excitedly things that he's seeing. And I'm like, dude, did you see this? And so so some of these now, this is, you know, kind of, um, getting into more the y'all's features and benefits. Right. Uh, And so when I read this, I read like about 40 hours, we promote a healthy work-life balance, no more than 40 hours a week here. Like, is that, is that, that's real? Like, how do, how do you guys do that? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, what does that look like as, as someone's onboarding, as you're, you know, taking on uh, greater projects and, and the company's growing? That goes back to um, our core value called always deliver. The articulation or definition of always deliver is that fulfilling a promise isn't just about bending over backwards once you've made the commitment to fulfill it. It is absolutely that. That is absolutely half the definition. Once I make a commitment to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to uphold it. But, but a critical um, precondition to that is I need to step back and very carefully assess my ability to fulfill a commitment. And that's estimating, right? Taking a look at the effort that is going to be required and my capacity to perform the commitment. And that's what I think so many people get wrong is they just don't take this, the, the step, the, the minute, the punctuation mark to consider my capacity and the effort required. And so um, just like all the other core values and a lot of these other practices that I've been talking to you about, we've only learned these through making mistakes. Sure. And so it's been a long, slow journey of making mm-hmm. 22 years of mistakes. And, and um, this, is one, this is one that we, earn, we, we learned early on. In fact, I... Through you guys asked about the new employee orientation. Um, I, me, and my business partner meet individually with all uh, new new hires as they're onboarding into the company, and we tell them the whole company story. And um, there was one chapter in the company story that is my greatest regret. It was in 2008. We were hired by a a, a very large client. It's the largest client I'd ever gotten to work with at this time. And uh, I think I was I don't know 20. Still a client to this day? No, okay. they're no longer a client. Okay. Um, I think I was. 22, 23 years old, and I was completely unqualified to, to do this project. This was a 180,000-page mig- website that needed to be migrated from a home-built content management system to an enterprise.net-based uh, content management system, 180,000 web pages. And wow. at that time, it was me in college and a couple of contractors in India and, and a full-time engineer in, uh, who was studying with me at the University of Texas. <laughs> and um, Whoa. they gave us the project, and we set about doing it earnestly and um, ultimately uh, got, got them across the finish line, but we made some really serious mistakes in the process, um, which really harmed their SEO. And this was a, a, a very well-known publication in their industry, and uh, they lost a lot of a lot of SEO uh, equity and page Ouch. rank in the process. Wow! The CEO was fired um, in the process for hiring wow. us. Wow! And um, to this day, I, I've you know I've reached out to him several times, and I've never been able to like tell him on the phone or in person just how uh, much I regret you know the impact of that mistake on him. Wow! And that all came down to the fact that I I mismanaged expectations. And ultimately wasn't qualified to, to take on that project in 2008. That experience ultimately led to the articulation of always deliver. And this, this critical component that there's two halves to that definition. One half is, you know, look honestly at your capacity and estimate the effort before you make the commitment. That's half the work. The other half of the work is, you know, once you make the commitment, you're going to bend over backwards and ultimately be responsible for, for doing it. But if you're having to work over 40 hours a week, that's 
most likely on on you or on the company because you didn't accurately estimate your capacity yeah. and the effort required. Okay, so I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> do you only work 40 hours a week, Mr. CEO? Yeah, I, I, um, I really do. Good. Um, honestly, uh, I love it. That hasn't, that hasn't always been the case. Sure. But um, absolutely, when I, you know, when I, uh, I had no idea how hard parenting was going to be. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is real. It is, it is really, really hard. And I want to be a good dad. You know, I want my kids yeah. to look back on this time and um, be grateful and positive about their experience at home. And so, um, that's that's a hard limit for me, and I think it's yeah. you know there's a lot of parents at Praxent, and and it's a hard limit for them as well. And so yeah, by all means. So I was the the president of a company. We had 2,500 employees by the time we sold, massive, and I was big on the same thing. It wasn't you know it wasn't stated, but I just I didn't want people overworked, and I tried to live out that myself and practice what I preached. Um, now there were a lot of people cause it was very operations heavy that ended up working more than 40 hours a week. But I, I constantly had this like feeling of guilt or even shame that, you know, I was kind of capping my, my capacity so that I could bring my best self to work and my best self to home, you know, a kid, you know, family, all, all that. Right. Uh, I'm curious if you experience that, if you go through those waves of feeling, you know, like, the pressures of the ridiculous hustle mentality and you're like, I'm not going to do that, but do you still struggle with, with that idea, that shame? I do. I do. I struggle with, you know, one of the, one of the cliches that I think really has applied is, you know, to build a great company, you got to surround yourself with people who are smarter and more qualified, more capable, more creative than you. Um, and I have done that successfully uh, surrounded by some brilliant people, some extraordinary thinkers. And one of the things that I struggle with is I look at their work product and it, you know, it makes me kind of, I feel all those things, guilt and shame and doubt when I, when I consider what they're able to do and how they're contributing to the company and moving it forward. And, um, so in, in many ways that kind of, um, motivates me to, to sharpen the saw and get, you know, get clearer but then there's other there, there's another way to think about it. A good friend of mine, I was I was walking around Town Lake talking with him about this, um, and he he talked about sort of the two modes of leadership and how they're appropriate at different stages of the company. Um, one is the doing mode where you are responsible for producing the artifact or the deliverable or coming up with the insight, and then there's the being mode where you are responsible for embodying the ideals of the company. And ensuring that people have that sense of belonging and the progress principle, and that's less about hard, the, the production of hard deliverables and artifacts. And so yeah. I have, I mean, I've been wrestling with that idea of doing versus being uh, as a way to kind of make sense of um, m- make sense of things. But um, that, yeah, that's what came to mind as as you asked that question. I love that. It sounds like I mean, you. I'm going to have to go back through this and take notes of all the books you've recommended. Right. Uh, but I think you would love the Culture Code. Uh, it, it, it talks about that as well. Um, anyway, just I a can't wait to little, read it. Little Thank little you. tidbit. Yeah, uh, it's longer than I expected it to be, but I love that. Um, okay, so in the interest of like honoring your time and the fact that we're kind of, I mean, this is awesome. I think we could talk about this for hours. Uh, if it went that long, we'd probably need some whiskey or something. But that you know, <laughs> uh, let's let's kind of. Before I move to the next segment and, and begin wrapping up, though, is there anything like really critical that you, you guys wanted to about get out? Interviewing and onboarding. I'm happy yeah, to yeah, go okay. back. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's do that. I yeah, want to hear. It about sounds the like you're gauntlet. willing. I, I wanted to honor your time, but if you're willing, yeah, dive like bring you're, us through the gauntlet. We'll talk about it a lot. 
in, in, I mean, as I was researching, I mean, that's, I've seen it a lot in writing and videos. So the gauntlet. Yeah, the gauntlet and then yeah. onto the onboarding yeah, so or the, whatever you, you have time for. <laughs> the gauntlet, like in many of my, in, in all my stories, I really, the, the gauntlet began uh, after I had to make a painful decision to terminate to, to, to terminate the employment of one of my team members. He was one of, one of my first employees, and it was an mm. excruciating decision. It was one that I sat on for for years. Um, I, I really struggled and struggled and struggled. This was a painful move. Um, and when I finally did it, I um, got clear on this, that at the end of the day, like I was, I, I was at fault in this because of, of I, I didn't set up appropriate boundaries and I didn't find the right person in the beginning. Like it just, I really contributed to the failure of this employment relationship. And I did not want to repeat that pain. I didn't want to cause it on anyone else. Um, if I could avoid it, I didn't ever want to terminate anyone else before, you know, again, that that's not necessarily realistic, but I did want to get, I, I wanted to try as hard as I possibly could to, um, to uphold my side of the bargain as an employer and I had a mentor say, well, you got to get really good on hiring. Um, that's where it starts, hiring the right people, building the right team. This is before we had articulated our, our core values around those six ideas that can do promise. But um, I, I found this book called Who uh, by Jeff Smart and Randy Street. And uh, Jeff is the son of uh, Brad Smart who wrote Top Grading. And um, uh, Brad Smart and Top Grading discovered that in, in the 80s, I think, the majority of interview questions are hypothetical questions. They're formulated like this. If you were to face XYZ circumstance, what would you do? Or how would you solve this problem? There is a uh, hypothetical construction to that question. And Brad's genius was, well, let's stop asking people what would they do. Let's stop being hypothetical in this process. Let's start asking them what did they do. Tell me about a time when you yeah. actually experienced this. Yep. or actually faced that. And he wrote, went on to write a book about it and created an entire um, category of you know, HR um, expertise now referred to as biographical interviewing. And uh, it was detailed in the book, Who, and it was very, very accessible, kind of laid out four interviews that you can walk through, through with candidates. And so I, um, I just went about implementing and setting that process and putting it into practice, like that Petri dish concept, applying that book and... Um, just got really serious about it and very deliberate to like do this perfectly. Um, and yeah, so it starts with a, it starts with, um, with a phone screening interview and then you go into a slightly longer, you know, 90 minute interview where you go through all the, the major chapters of the, of the candidates job history and you ask like really tough questions. Like, um, what was the name of your last boss? How do you spell that? And when I talked to her, how will she rate your performance on a one to five um, point scale? And that's an uncomfortable and awkward question to ask, but if I hedge it, how would she rate you if I talk to her? That's me hedging it and softening it. Sure. All of a sudden I'm doing the candidate a disservice because I might actually not extract information that could indicate to me that they don't have, they don't align with these core values. It doesn't mean they're a bad person, it just means that they, they probably belong in a different, different organization with different core values. And so... Um, that has been a critical building block to um, to our, our culture and our team um, that we have today is like really sticking with that script. And so the top grading interview process, it's got four steps to it. We go through those four steps. We also use um, a psychometric test called culture index. And, um, and then we go through reference checks. So every single one of the bosses they talk about um, in their biographical interview, if they've had 15 years of career history, they might have seven bosses. 
we're actually going to call all seven of those bosses. We're going to ask them the real questions, and we're going to compare the boss's response uh, with the candidate's response to see you know, if there's any alignment or mismatch. And it means that we have to go through, we have to put a lot more candidates to the top of the funnel than we would have uh, if we weren't following this process because the vast majority of people fall out of it. In fact, we only hire one half of 1%, which means wow. we have to source 15,000 candidates to the top of our funnel every single year. 15,000 candidates apply for our jobs. And that's how we're able to hire ultimately like enough to, to fulfill the demand without sacrificing these six ideas. Um, and that is like... Principle number one, that's the, the, the whole concept that we're not interested in going fast at the expense of quality. We're not going to yeah. stop this gauntlet, the commitment to the excellence that we've, we've developed through this process. Yeah, that's wild. Because it really doesn't serve people. You're right. Yeah, yeah that sounds like a, a very in-depth, I mean, that is, that is the deepest hiring and interview process I've ever heard of. That is wild. But it works. I mean, clearly the, the proof is in the pudding, right? So, Wow. The you, gauntlet. Uh, that, you guys, gauntlet. you guys asked about onboarding, and so I, I got this. Um, yeah. So if someone makes it through the gauntlet, then what? The, you, uh, there was this one um, speech that I went to. I think it was Jack Daly who said that it's crazy to him that we might throw a celebration for an employee when they're leaving the company. We'll bring out the cake and you know celebrate their last day and wish them well on their next chapter. And he just thought that that was crazy that we do that, but we don't celebrate with the same fervor and yeah. enthusiasm when they arrive at the company. Right. Yeah. And that really made sense to me. That just seemed like craziness. And so I, I went back to the company and the leadership team, and I said, you guys, what do you think of this quote? This, this seems like we really ought to reverse this. And then we went around kind of doing a, a workshop to figure out how can we make somebody's first day at Praxent the best day of their career. And we came up with a bunch of ideas. And, um, and so, like, we'll send, we'll send flowers to um, your spouse or significant other on your first day because we, we, re we realize in many cases that this is not an individual decision. This is really, in many cases, a family decision. Sure. Um, and we want to know that that spouse or significant other is a member of our community as well, just like, just like uh, the employee is. Um, that's one idea that, uh, that came from that brainstorming process that mm -hmm. I continue to be really, really proud of. Um, it's it just silly things, block easy blocking and tackling. In the majority of cases, it's, it's gut-wrenching for me to hear this, but in the majority of cases, I think a new employee shows up to work and they don't yet have a business card ready. They don't even have an email account or computer that's been right. provisioned. Yeah. That is absolutely mad yep. to me. Not only is it wasteful financially, but it just think about the, the gut punch to that human spirit when they show up to a company and feel on day one buyer's remorse. Yeah. Like that yeah. Is, so what am I supposed to do here? What, yeah, like... They're unprepared for me to start today. What does that yeah. say about this choice that I've just made? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, did I make the wrong choice? Just imagine the impact to that person's engagement, their enthusiasm, their buy-in, their optimism, their spirit. If, you, if, you, if that's their introduction, like nothing else can go. Like it's just um, it's true. So we just focused on, okay, almost like a customer journey map, but for an employee, an employee journey map. Like how do we identify all the points of possible frustration or disappointment, buyer's remorse, and then how do we turn those into moments of delight and yeah, flow? Reverse engineered and, it, yeah. yeah. I love that. All of those things you're talking about, those are those are belonging cues, you know, like, yeah. oh, this, I made the right choice. I belong here. These guys care about me. I mean, yeah. Well, Gosh, it also so goes good. back to that intentionality because as you, as hearing you say, especially some of that at the end, there's this part of my brain that's like, well, yeah, why not? I mean, duh, but no one's doing that. Yeah. Like this is, that's fantastic. Do we have a moment? Can I 
Can we talk Boy yeah. Scouts for a second? Oh, let's do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was never, I grew up in Louisiana, was never a, uh, in the Boy Scouts. Uh, my story, actually, I remember, and I'm the youngest of four. I, I was in third or fourth grade, and they someone came to my school to recruit for the, the Boy Scouts. And I remember my mom at the time was single, raising four kids. She was a secretary. And I remember going home, real excited, telling my mom, somehow, some way, she came up with the money for me to sign up. And at the time, it didn't, it didn't really register how big that was. But then what's messed up is when I went a few days later for the first meeting, uh, I still remember the principal being there and said, man, I'm so sorry to tell y'all that you've, you've been, um, you've been had, uh, the money that you donate, that person, uh, took your money, uh, and, and you, you're not actually involved in the Boy Scouts. Whoa. Um, well, fast forward, the job that brought me to Austin in 2008, I, um, I was teaching golf at a country club in Dallas and just happened to teach golf to the then CEO of the Boy Scouts of America, who one day after a round of golf offered me uh, a position. Uh, And it took a few months. I had to go through the actual process. But actually, the job that brought me to Austin, I did fundraising and recruiting for the Boy Scouts for four (laughs) years. Wow. Um, And so got to really and and then use that as a part of my story when I would go to school to, to tell my story and to say like, and I need you to know that's not going to be your story. And, um, and, and as far as the, the leadership development, the, uh, the training, the empowering of like young men and even nowadays young men and young ladies to, to, to do great things. I mean, like, I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's still nothing like it. I mean, it's still the largest youth serving organization in the country. Um, so to me that immediately, like you, you got your Eagle. Did, was that in Austin or was that in Houston? Well, that, that, that was a gut wrenching story. Thank you for sharing it. That is, um, uh, wow. That was powerful. But I, I, I it was in Houston. Okay. Um, I started my scouting journey in South Africa, um, Wow. where I'm, I'm from and I was 11 when we moved, but I'd gone through Cub Scouts and started scouting in, in South Africa and, uh, came to Houston Tried out a couple of troops, and I really found my calling in Troop uh, 642 in, uh, in the Memorial neighborhood. And, um, yeah, I agree. The leadership development, I've only just gotten my son back into Cub Scouts now, and I'm recognizing with a bit of objectivity and distance, having been out of it for so long, actually just what I had. Yeah, yeah. From a leadership development perspective, it was extraordinary. The culture of scouting came back to me in a flash. I took my son Graham to a camp out two weekends ago, and it had been, like I said, you know, a long time, tw- over 20 years. And that culture with the Boy Scout law, um, the concept of be prepared, you know, uh, I c- couldn't recite the law now, but trustworthy, yep. brave, clean, reverent, yep. um, helpful, courteous, kind, th- all these ideas, uh, I felt in an instant, I was yeah. surrounded by something that was familiar, like an old, you know, winter coat. Yeah. And, um, I remembered that these, these words, these core values of scouting called me, they, they, they motivated me to bend my behavior to these ideals. And, um, it's just the stuff that we've been talking about, and I realized actually how positive that was for me as a uh, as an initial exposure to very intentionally designed a very intentionally designed value system. The other thing about scouting is that um, week after week, as you go from one camp out to the next, you're putting yourself into an unfamiliar situation, a dis- like an uncomfortable uh, experience yep. that often doesn't go as planned. Whether that's because of a rainstorm, or a broken ankle, or a forgotten 
um, yeah, say, Dutch for, oven. Forgetting yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I learned now with objectivity and distance, I can see how much I learned about being resilient, being adaptable, um, and just how much you can achieve. I'll never forget. There was this moment where I went on a high adventure trip in Hawaii with my dad, and nice. actually just being able to be with my dad and scouting was was one of the m- most valuable components because I got to to know him in a way that I I couldn't have ever gotten to know him in the household. Um, and we were staying in the crater of Mount Haleakala, this uh, the dormant volcano there on Maui, and awesome. the rain that we had that night was torrential. I remember <laughs> it, it was six eight inches of of water in the tent. I was completely soaked. All of us were. The mood that next morning was, it was uh, about as low as you can get. The morale on uh, on that island was disastrous. Um, we didn't want to make eye contact with each other, <laughs> you know. Like <laughs> there was no coffee, you know. Like all the adults were upset, and our packs weighed an extra thirty five pounds because everything was soaking. But then we hiked out, being in nature, the most beautiful nature in the world, to the coast. And as we got closer, the sun dried us out, and um, we fell into a rhythm of hiking and stepping together. We started singing songs as we approached the ocean. And I remember being just profoundly caught up in this transition of, of, of the emotion of the troop from like the, the lowest low to one of the highest highs of my life. When we approached the most beautiful, you know, the Pacific Ocean there yeah. in Maui and then got home and were able to take a shower. And um, that really stuck with me that... Um, this too shall pass, and that the way that you feel about a thing isn't necessarily trustworthy because it's transient. Yeah. Um, and so just give it a moment, pause for a second, and it's probably going to look very different in half a day than it does right now. Um, all those lessons I took away from scouting, I sincerely hope that I can pass those on to my kids um, in their scouting journey, but I completely agree with you. Like Those are, those are lessons I'm going to take to the grave. Yeah. That's so well, and I love just the, the overlap into how you've taken some of those things into practice. It's, it's really phenomenal to see. Thank you. Yeah. This time has been awesome. Yeah. Sam, you just, uh, a wealth fantastic. of knowledge. Uh, I love what you've done there. Uh, you mentioned culture index. Uh, you took the predictive index yeah, for, that's for right. me. Uh, I'm an expert in both actually. And I've been a user of both in your position uh, and now you're professionally uh, you're being connected with them. But so I, what is what's your pattern name with Culture Index? It's called a technical expert. Okay, that's what I thought. But you you have a high social trait, which is interesting because uh, that's not typical for the technical expert. Exactly. Uh, pre- predictive Index calls you a controller, uh, and your your patience psychometric is off the charts low. You have <laughs> you have none. You, like I, I think it's like what point on this? Literally on the, off the charts. Yeah, it is. And, and on the six sigma bell curve, I think that means you're like. 99.4% of the population moves too slow for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that sounds about right. <laughs> and yet, your your formality or conformity, your detail trait is actually really high. So you want it done accurate, thorough, precise. How in the world do you live with those dichotomies in yourself of wanting to move at a million miles an hour and having to make sure it is right? Oh, yeah. I uh, Thank God I'm married to my, my amazing <laughs> wife. Uh, she's got a lot of patience, a lot more patience than I do. Um, the, it's true. It's fascinating, actually, how that we we can have um, dimensions within a single human being that are completely contradictory. Yeah. Um, and that's a good example. You know, this this um, this absolutely is true of me. And um, I depend on I depend on people outside. I, I have found that if I can have if I'm trying to improve a thing in a frustrated way, I learned actually from an enneagram coach. I took the enneagram and worked with a consultant to help me. Uh, and which one are you on that? 
I'm a one. You're a one, okay. Uh, which is the so, reform, so, so reformer. Is my wife. Yeah. 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 Uh, also perfectionistic. And what I learned about uh, myself through the Enneagram process was that if I am trying to improve a thing um, with frustrated energy, that's a flag for me to step back and take a moment and like uh, surrender a little bit and, and detach from the emotion, the intensity that I feel. Um, and to gain a little bit more objectivity, that's still a muscle that I'm trying to build. But that's, mm-hmm. I think that that's the most important. That's the most important practice for me to put in place as I reflect about my low C and my high D and predictive index, for example. Yeah, yep. yeah. Well, that's super fun. Fascinating stuff. I love it. Uh, I'm an eight, by the way. Uh, I don't, seven. Seven here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for you know, all of our listeners that are uh, enneagram nerds and wanted to know. All right. So. We, we're just going to end off with something a little bit fun. You don't, you can't look at the screen, all right? Don't, okay. don't, okay. don't cheat. <laughs> so this is just a this or that quick fire. Uh, just a way to end on... First uh, thing uh, that comes to your mind. Yeah, first all thing right. that comes to mind. All right. Delivery or dine-in? Delivery or what? Or dine-in. No, dine-in. Broccoli or green beans? Green beans. DC or Marvel? Neither. I'm not into <laughs> fantasy. Don't, I, I'm so sorry. My wife would be laughing. I, I can't. I can't do it. Okay. You can't. You can't like, do I, the comic I, give me, stuff. Give me a documentary. Can I okay. have a documentary? Okay. okay. <laughs> sure. 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 Well, th- then this may or may not resume, resonate. Football or soccer? Tennis. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Serena. And then, and then and the last one's a little bit local. So all you non-Austinites, uh, you may not get this, but salsa or creamy jalapeno. Ooh, that's like both. both. <laughs> that's hard. And if you're listening and you've never been to Chewy's, go to Chewy's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was so fun. It was so informative. Uh, just, I love what you've built. I love what you're doing. That you have a team around you that is is encouraging all of this, like, intentionality and growth. And um, what, what was the framework? The, uh, the can-do? Uh, core value? Yes. Well, the core value, the pr- progress, progress principle, progress principle, yeah. all of that just is wonderful stuff. I'm, we're going to have to go through take notes and make sure that we're bullet pointing all of this in our show notes. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, before we end, do you want to plug anything? You're working on anything that uh, you want our listeners to know about? Oh, thank you so much, so much for asking. You know, I, um, I, I will say that, um, a lot of this comes down to, um, I had a mentor who told me recently, he, he said, sales and marketing is not what grows a company. If you're frustrated about the lack of growth or progress or whatever, quit trying to solve the problem with more revenue. At the end of the day, what grows companies or grows organizations is leadership capacity. If you're having a hard time growing, what you need to do is cultivate more capacity, more leadership capacity. And in some cases, that might mean stepping back from what you're doing, taking a long trip, taking a long weekend, taking you know, uh, a longer than usual vacation. Um, and so that's the thing that comes to mind to plug is, is build your capacity, focus on your energy, uh, check in on, uh, on, on how that's all going. Because at the end of the day, the organization depends on you as an, as a leader to show up healthy, uh, in your mind and your spirit. And, um, yeah, keep on, keep on doing the, the good work. Well, not surprisingly, Tim Hamilton has given us the most selfless plug we've ever had on the I show. Love it. I love it. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, it was, it's been awesome. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Tim. Work Cultured, signing off.